Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather on your day to fellowship, to worship. I pray, Father, that you will do the work in our hearts that each of us needs to have done this day, an attitude of humility, a desire to learn and to grow. O oh Lord, we know that in our own flesh there is no good thing. and It's only because of the indwelling Christ that goodness has come. And so we submit to the Spirit of the living God today that he will be our teacher of the Word of God. And Lord, we pray that you will touch each life today. We know there are some who are away. We ask for your special blessing upon those. We ask, Lord, for the other classes that are um, being taught at this hour, that you will be present with each one, all the way from the nursery classes, uh, all the way through the senior classes. We pray that you will be very present and that your word will be rightly divided. We commit ourselves and our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you get the paper, there was this article about a large tomb that's been recently found. Well, it's been known about for a long time, but really began to be explored recently in Egypt. It's in the Valley of the Kings, not very far from King Tut's tomb. And it's kind of interesting because uh, the article points out the fact that this tomb, which is said to be 3,200 years old, has, has, has been opened and they've, they've dug out a whole series of uh, rooms and they think there's probably another whole series below that level, which if it's true when it's totally excavated will be by far the largest tombs they've ever discovered in Egypt. And to us it was interesting because we've been in King Tut's tomb in Egypt and, and King Tut's tomb altogether if I remember right, would be maybe the size of this room, do you think, the two rooms? Together, about the size of this room. And uh, in this article, they say that if King Tut's tomb is compared to a matchbox, the average tomb is the size of a book, and the tomb they're discovering is the size of a coffee table. You know, if you make those kinds of comparisons. And so it's a... It's a huge uh, area that they've uh, been uncovering in which, uh, of course, there are wall paintings and all the things that the Egyptians left behind, which are very uh, instructive because they help us to understand more of the culture and of the history of, of ancient Egypt. So uh, Egypt is a fascinating place to, uh, to study. And who knows, maybe even someday somebody's going to discover information that will document for you know, historical purposes, the actual existence of uh, Joseph and, and the Hebrews and so forth in, in Egypt. It's kind of interesting that as we have been looking at the beginning of the book of Exodus, that the Hebrews probably came into Egypt somewhere in the 18th or the 19th century before Christ. And historians are still rattling around about that, biblical historians. And of course, the scripture gives various uh, numbers for the time that they were there, from 430 to 480 years, depending on whether you read an art, uh, something written by Paul or one of the uh, comments made in the Old Testament. And what uh, most historians point out was, of course, that the author of the first five books of the Bible, Moses, 
was interested in relating what God has done for his people. And he is not interested in relating specific uh, details of the environment of all that took place. Moses could easily have said, the Pharaoh, when I was born, the Pharaoh who had ordered the infanticide was such and such a Pharaoh. He would have known the man's name. He could have named the Pharaoh of the Exodus instead of just saying Pharaoh. And if he had done so, we'd have solved all our historical problems because we'd have known exactly the time Moses was born, I mean, at least the reign in which he was born, and, and the reign in which the Exodus took place. Instead, what we have is an argument that's been going on for hundreds of years as to when was uh, the date of the Exodus. Was it uh, in 1290, as some think, B.C., or was it in 1440, as others think, or somewhere around those two time frames? Well, there's evidence to support both positions. And, of course, when the time of the Exodus was determines when Moses was born. Do we really need to know when Moses was born? Well, apparently Moses didn't think so. But if, if the Exodus occurred in 1290, then Moses was born 80 years before that, which would be, what, 1370? If the Exodus occurred in 1440 or somewhere around that, then he was born around 1520 B.C., none of which we relate to very carefully because that's just a long time ago for, for us as we think about that. But the Hebrews have been in the land for probably 400 years or close to 400 years before Moses was born. And, and they had already become so numerous that as we read in the first chapter, the uh, Egyptians were intimidated by them. And so they began to oppress them and to use them for forced labor. And when that didn't slow down their birth rate, they began to, pra or to order, at least, infanticide. And uh, the order went out that all the male Hebrew children were to be executed, were to be tossed in the river or killed by the midwives at the moment of birth. Within that context, of course, we have this specific account of the birth of Moses. Let me read the first five verses of the second chapter. Again, as we read them at the end of class last time. Second chapter of Exodus, verses 1 through 5. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. Now, first of all, we noticed last week that the two people involved in bringing about the birth of this child were of the tribe of Levi. Now, because of our knowledge of, of Bible, we automatically think, aha, the priestly tribe. But yes, later, not now. At this point, they're just one of the 12 tribes. Uh, they are, have not been chosen as the priestly tribe yet. That will come after they are in the wilderness. And God gives the law at Mount Sinai. And, and then the tribe of Levi is chosen uh, to be the priestly tribe. So at this point, it's just one of the 12 tribes, and the uh, 
reference here is important though because as we understand Levi uh, of the tribe of Levi will be Moses and also Aaron and Aaron will be the first high priest of the new system of law given at Mount Sinai. Now in this passage, you'll notice as we read it, it says a man of Levi married a woman of Levi. Their names are not even mentioned. It doesn't say who they are. We know from later passages in Exodus and elsewhere that their names are Amram and Jochebed. It's a little frustrating, of course, uh, to us who have this Western mentality that all the details aren't given because we want to know who and why and when and where all these things took place. And uh, for Moses, it just wasn't that critical. It's sort of like reading Oriental history, the history of China written by Chinese, for example. And it's, it's frustrating to us who, who have derived from the Greco-Roman tradition because the, the Chinese don't give all those little specifics. They write more like the Bible. And uh, so it makes it a little bit more difficult to nail it down. Do we really need to have it nailed down? Well, for faith, no, obviously. Maybe for intellectual <laughs> uh, satisfaction, it would, be, it would be nice. About three months, this child lived with his parents until his crying became too loud to be muffled. And in order to protect him, Jochebed came up with the idea of putting him in a basket and floating him in the Nile. Now, I don't know how many of you mothers would come up with such an idea to protect your child. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll put him in a basket and float him in the river. That ought to help. <laughs> Obviously, such a radical plan had to come from God, in, in my opinion, at least. And I think it's important for us to note that she did not just stick him in a basket and shove him off in the river and hope that all came out well. She put him in a basket amongst the reeds, we're told, along the bank of the Nile in a specific place at a specific time. I don't think Moses was sitting out there floating in the Nile River for days on end. I think that he was out there for a relatively short period of time, maybe a few hours at the most. She chose this certain site and she timed it exactly uh, according to what she knew would happen. She knew that this was the place where the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, normally bathed. She knew the cycle at which this woman came down to bathe. And so she put the baby out there ahead of time so that he might be found. Now, who is this woman? Who is Pharaoh's daughter? Well, the Bible is silent. It doesn't name her. But uh, her name has been given in other records. That is, a name has been given in other records. Eusebius, who is a very important early ch church historian who lived uh, at the end of the third, the beginning of the fourth century, wrote a, a history of the church around 325. Uh, in that he refers to the Jewish traditions whereby her name is Maris, M-E-R-R-I-S, according to these Jewish traditions. Her name was Maris. Josephus, though, if you've ever read Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, he goes into this in some detail. And he says that her name was Thermuthis. Now, there is no 
tradition, no record in, in Egyptian history of a Maris or a Thermutus, but that's not unusual. Thousands of important people were never had, never had their names inscribed because much of what we know of Egyptian history comes from inscriptions that were put on walls and put on arches and upon pillars, obelisks, and uh, usually those inscriptions had to do with the high and mighty pharaoh or maybe some great priest and not a lot of detail about other individuals. So, you know, Josephus lived 2,000 years ago, a whole lot closer to the scene than we. And those traditions that Eusebius picked up upon even antedated Josephus. Other names are suggested, however, too, by various uh, Jewish historians. Whatever the case, whatever this woman's name, she came down to the river at her appointed hour to bathe, and the basket was placed there by Jochebed. And as she and her attendants came by, they saw the basket. Now, if you think about this for a moment, for Jochebed to place this basket out there where it would be discovered by the Egyptian princess could be considered a big chance that she was taking. But from a passage we'll note in a minute uh, from Hebrews, she was taking no chance at all, actually. To me, it's really characteristic of God. God inspires radical plans. From our point of view, they're radical. Now, we have this tendency to be very logical and sequential in our thinking. And we think, aha, now if I do this, this will be the consequences. If I do that, this will be the consequences. And God comes along and says, if you do either of those things, neither will work. But if you do this, which we wouldn't even think of in the first place, it'll work. <laughs> and, and that's the way God seems to operate. His Savior. Moses is God's Savior for, for the Jews at that hour. His Savior, God's Savior, is going to be preserved by the sympathy and the motherly instincts of the very daughter of the Pharaoh who had ordered the execution of the babies. And this baby will ultimately be raised right under the nose of the Pharaoh who ordered that all these Hebrew babies be destroyed. Now, who would ever think of that besides God? You know? I mean, God's plans always make Satan look to be the fool that he is. God always outwits him at every turn. And Satan's desire, of course, was to destroy any savior that might come along for Israel. He wanted to make sure Israel didn't survive because through Israel came the promise. And if he could wipe out Israel, he could destroy God's promise. And so this was his desire. I'd like to turn to Acts chapter 7. I'll make reference to this uh, sermon uh, given by Stephen on uh, a couple of occasions as we go through uh, this material. Acts chapter 7, verse 20. Uh, Stephen is, is, of course, giving his speech of defense before the Sanhedrin. And, and he says, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, put out to die, literally is the meaning here, 
Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. What in the world does Stephen mean here? I mean, I think it's rather obvious to us from the second chapter of Exodus that Jochebed's plan is not to destroy her son. She's not putting him out here so that, you know, the basket will sink and he'll drown or so that a crocodile will eat him or so that he'll be discovered and destroyed, uh, which, you know, you could almost get from what Stephen is saying there. It was certainly Pharaoh's order. Pharaoh's order was that these babies be destroyed. And it certainly was Satan's desire that the baby be destroyed. Hebrews 11.23, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read the verse to you. We read this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that he, he was a beautiful child, or as we noted last week, a noble a child of noble bearing. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. If they were not afraid of the king's edict, they certainly didn't put their son out to die. They had another plan in mind, one that God had put in their hearts. Amram and Jochebed are the ones being referred to when it says, by faith, Moses when he was born. Obviously, Moses when he was born didn't have faith in that sense because he was just a baby. But Amram and Jochebed had faith that this boy would be preserved. And they didn't, know, they, they didn't fear either the edict or the consequences of disobeying the edict. Thus, Stephen's statement meant that that was the way it appeared to the royal princes. It appeared that the child had been exposed, put out to, to be destroyed. From her perspective, it seemed that way although that was not the intent at all of Amram and Jochebed. Certainly the thought that, oh, this poor baby has been put out to die, would play on the compassion of the, of the princess. And, and her heart would be turned in favor of this seemingly helpless and abandoned child. Now, the question that some would ask and it's very logical that it would be asked is, why is this princess? I mean, after she's a royal princess, what is she coming down to the reedy, muddy banks of the Nile to bathe for? Well, of course, our answer can begin with the fact that indoor plumbing is a relatively modern <laughs> invention. Not that they didn't have bathing pools in some of the great establishments of royalty in Egypt. But it was very common for the nobles. In fact, there are portraits of them doing so on the, in the wall paintings in the tombs of nobles bathing in the River Nile. So it was considered to be a normal practice. It was not considered immodest in any sense of the word. Also, of course, I think we need to picture this bathing more in a typical Oriental style. If you're familiar with the way Indians from India bathe, they'll go out and bathe in a river, but they never take their clothes off, right? They wear these saris wrapped around them, and, and they go out in the river, and they keep the sari around them, but they wash themselves under the sari. And certainly, this was probably the way she washed and, and bathed, keeping her body draped. But I think the primary reason uh, for doing this was the view of the Nile River. 
Indians bathe in the river Ganges because to them to bathe in the river Ganges is to wash away your evil, is to improve your karma, is to get rid of what we call sin. Because the holy Ganges is a cleansing flow. And so the ancient Egyptians thought of the Nile. The Nile was the river of the gods. It was the heart of Egypt. And all the gods blessed the Nile. So to get into the Nile and to bathe was to prolong life, was to, to make your life productive and, and, and make you fertile. And of course this was the great desire of all Egyptians. And so bathing in the Nile became a sacrament, if you will. It was a holy rite, ritual. And so for all of these reasons, I don't think that it was very unusual at all for her to be coming down to bathe in the Nile River. We've stood on the banks of the Nile River, and it didn't look like anything I'd want to bathe in. Probably isn't quite as bad as the Ganges, but nevertheless, uh, I'd prefer the Sacramento if I had to choose <laughs> between them. After all, the Nile's been flowing for 4,000 miles and sweeping up everything in between. Well, of course, there's the big High Aswan Dam now, which blocks out most of the junk. But still, it doesn't look real inviting, if you want to know the truth. Well, this unusual, I mean, she's come down here to bathe day after day. Or I don't know what the cycle is, you know, whether it was daily or, or weekly or whatever. But she came down to this regular site, and there was an unusual phenomenon. There was this ungainly-looking basket floating out there in the reeds. And she saw, uh, spotted it quickly, and she ordered one of her attendants to go out and retrieve it and to bring it back to her. And, of course, she opened it, and Moses cried. Now, if Moses had gone, stuck his, <laughs> stuck his tongue out her... <laughs> You know, of course, a three-month-old baby probably wouldn't do that. I'm sure he wouldn't. But, the, but Moses cried. And what will that instantly trigger? A motherly instinct. Well, let's look at the next few verses and see what the response is. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the boy was crying. She had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse her for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Scripture says that she had pity on the baby when he cried. The Hebrew word used there, translated pity, carries with it the connotation of compassion and a desire to spare, to do whatever she could to spare this child's life. It's clear from the passage she knew who he was. This is one of the Hebrews' children, it says in the passage. She knew that this was not an Egyptian child. And yet, God put it in her heart to spare the child. Now, did she agree with her father's edict? We have no idea whether she was a political person. 
Certain she knew, certainly she knew uh, about the edict because it was broadcast through the land. Did she agree with it? We have no idea. But whatever was her attitude, God put it in her heart to have compassion on this specific baby. And then, as God always works, notice how it's, it's all topped off. Jochebed gets to have the baby back, nurse him and raise him, and get paid for it in the process. <laughs> now, do you think Amram and Jochebed were amazed? I think so. I think they stopped and thought, my, my, how God has blessed. I mean, such a plan that God has inspired has brought about this, this wonderful turn of events. And where has this happened? In the very heart of a pagan land. A land in which no one worshipped God except the Hebrews. A land of, of possibly millions of polytheistic Egyptians who worshipped this pantheon full of gods that had nothing to do with God Almighty and had everything to do with the prince of the power of the air. And yet in the heart of that, God works this miracle. What it tells us is, of course, that God is the God of the impossible. As we read in Scripture, is there anything that God cannot do? Well, if we have any you know, any concern about that, then our God is, as J.B. Phillips says, too small. Because our God is the God of the impossible. What is impossible to us, God can do. I think it's important as we look at this passage to note certain other points. Remember how Joseph was raised from the dungeon as an accused alien? He was raised to the pinnacle of power and made prime minister in Egypt. This is very, very parallel, if you notice. Moses was, in effect, condemned to die. That was Pharaoh's edict. And yet, from this condemnation to death, he is raised to the position of a royal prince in Egypt. A very, very parallel process to what happened to Joseph. And all because this was God's plan. Joseph, from anonymity to prime minister. Moses, from equal anonymity, royal prince in Egypt. Could only be done by God. No human process could have brought this about. Secondly, notice Pharaoh's daughter's reactions to all of this. She brings up the baby, the baby cries, she has compassion on this baby, and she wonders, now what am I going to do? And there was this little girl who just happened to be passing by, who just happened to say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, you, you want somebody to nurse the baby? I think I can find some, there must be a Hebrew woman who'd be willing to do it. <laughs> and she says, sure, go find one. I mean, this girl was a total stranger, probably never seen her before. And, and she brings, of course, Moses' mother, and that's a total stranger to, to Pharaoh's daughter. And she gives this baby to this total stranger and says, now, will you nurse him until he's weaned and then bring him back to me because he's going to be my son? <laughs> I mean, you know, how many people would do something like that? I think, of course, she probably sent some officials with Jochebed back to her home 
to check out, make sure everything is okay, and to locate the home, and probably put some kind of a seal on it saying, don't touch this baby, you know, whatever she had to say, to preserve this baby from any threat from royal officials. And then thirdly, God used three women to preserve the life of this one that he has chosen to be Israel's deliverer. Three women play the title role in this, in this uh, act of deliverance. You have Moses' mother, you have Moses' sister, and you have Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, where are the men? <laughs> God is using these ladies to accomplish his plan here in the life of Moses. And something else to notice, not a single one of these ladies is named in this passage. We don't know the name of Jochebed from this passage. We don't know the name of Miriam from this passage, the daughter. And we don't know the, the name of Pharaoh's daughter. I think that teaches us something. Something that sometimes in the Christian community gets side, you know, gets um, circumscribed or, you know, missed somewhere along the line. And that fame is not to be the primary motivator for service to God. If we want to serve God so that our name is on some album cover or on some marquee or on some book someplace, then that's the wrong motivation for the service to God. I mean, the name might end up there, but that shouldn't be what motivates us to serve Him. These ladies are accomplishing God's purpose, probably at least in part, especially on the part of Pharaoh's daughter, unwittingly, but nevertheless, their names are not emblazoned in lights for what they have done. And I think the point is, when God's will is accomplished by any of us or through any of us, it's not we who have done it. It's God who has done it. It's not been done in our strength or by our ability or by our brilliance. It's been done by God himself. Because the greatest brilliance of mankind and the greatest strength of mankind hits a wall when it comes to so many things that need to be accomplished. Only God can break through the barriers and accomplish what seemed to be impossible. So the names are not important. It's God who is important in accomplishing His will and bringing about the fulfillment of His purpose. And so we today, looking back at this, can clearly see the hand of God reaching down here. Now, it's not quite so easy for us to see the hand of God in other events of history that are not part of Scripture. But by looking at Scripture, we can drive a parallel that obviously God's hand is at work bringing about His purpose at the various points through time. Obviously, for some of us who have a particular persuasion about how God acts, we call certain things the act of God and certain other things not. And someone else from a different persuasion will maybe reverse the order. But certainly we know that God is at work even today as he was then. How long was Moses raised by his mother? Well, the scripture indicates until he was weaned, completely weaned. Now in the ancient world, weaning usually took place later than it does in the modern world. Uh, he could have been as old as three or four, and probably was at least three, uh, before he was completely weaned. 
And so he was a, a child, a preschooler, if you will, uh, when he was finally brought by Jochebed to the royal princess. And the scripture teaches us that the royal princess at that point adopted him as her own son. Now that would probably indicate that she had no children of her own, at least at that point. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't have bothered to do this because obviously to adopt a son would make him a rival to any other sons that she might have at this point in time. We're also told in Scripture that she named him Moses. She gave him the name. And so it probably was of Egyptian origin. In fact, Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews says that the Egyptian word for water was mo, M-O, and that the word for drawing someone out of the water was usus. And so by putting mo and usus together, you get moses or moses as one drawn out of the water, which of course it specifically says in this um, passage. In verse 10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son, and she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. So the meaning of the name was drawn out of the water in Egyptian. Now, to the Hebrews, he became Moshi, which is very similar. But instead of meaning drawn out of the water, it means one who draws out of the water. And was that name uh, simply applied in retrospect? Was it applied, applied prophetically? Because certainly it refers to the fact that Moses led the children of Israel through the water of the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they would meet God at Mount Sinai. So he would draw Israel through the water and into the promised land. So to Pharaoh's daughter, he's Moses. To the Hebrews, he's Moshe. To God, he is, as Stephen says, lovely. God's man of the hour. Now, how much was Jochebed able to teach this child before she had to turn him over to Pharaoh's daughter? That was the only time she had, as far as we know, that's the only time she had to teach her son about his heritage, who he was, who his parents were, who his people were, what his ancestry was, uh, who his God was. How much can a three to four year old understand? Well, we don't know. But certainly seeds were planted deeply in the heart of this young man. Seeds that would later emerge and blossom. It could be that he didn't even really grasp all the things that she tried to teach him during those years. Certainly as a three to four year old, he couldn't grasp the, the greater issues at all. But, but the truth was planted down there in his heart during those three to four years. And this was very, very important because from the moment he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he was no longer in the home of Amram and Jochebed. He was in the royal palace. And he would be subjected to, subjected to complete Egyptian indoctrination and training. In fact, Scripture alludes to that. 
If you turn back again to uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen goes on in the next verse or so to say in verse 22, And Moses was educated in all the, way, the learning of the Egyptians. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in word and deed. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't he stand before the bush and say, I can't talk to too well. <laughs> but the scripture here says he was a man with power in word and deeds. Now, is Stephen projecting beyond his Egyptian years and referring to the times when he stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go? That could be so. But we are told, at least in this passage, that he was given the education of Egyptian prince, which was certainly one of the finest possible educations available in that particular day. Where was he educated? Well, maybe at first he received some education there in the royal palace, wherever that was. Was it at Memphis? Was it at Tanis? Well, we don't know. Either city is possible, depending on when we're talking about. Tanis was an important uh, city in the days of the uh, Hyksos, and Tanis would be an important city later under the Ramesside pharaohs. In between, Memphis and Thebes were more important. There's no indication that Moses was ever at Thebes, because that's way down the Nile River, about halfway down towards the border with Sudan. And it's not likely that he was down there. The implication is he was in the general delta area. So, he could have been given education in the palace at Tanis or the uh, palace at Memphis, or it's very probable that part of his education was given to him at Heliopolis, or on, as it's referred to uh, in Scripture also. Remember where Joseph got his wife? His wife's name was Asnath, and who was she, the daughter of? One of the priests, yes, probably the high priest of Ra, or Re, the sun god of Egypt, in Heliopolis. And so she had been born probably and raised in Heliopolis. And so it's very possible that Moses was sent there for a good portion of his training. Because it was very common in the ancient world to educate via the priesthood. The priesthood provided the principal means of education in the ancient world. In fact, if you study history in its broadest scope, you'll discover that the priesthood often was the primary educating group in most societies for most, much of history because they were the intelligentsia of the ancient world and even of the medieval world. I mean, who knew anything in the medieval world besides the priests? Many of the great kings and princes of of England and France and Germany and so forth in the medieval world were illiterate. Couldn't even read or write. And, and where was knowledge held? It was held in the monasteries and the convents by the monks and the nuns. And uh, so education often could only be obtained there. And of course, eventually universities developed uh, beginning around the 10th century and so forth. But uh, even they were often dominated by orders of friars who held the great university professorships 
in the medieval world in much of Europe, Franciscans and Dominicans. Where was Martin Luther primarily educated? Under the auspices of the Augustinians. And so as you think about this, it's not unusual at all to conceive of Moses having been trained by the priests of Egypt. Was God there? Yeah, God was guarding his soul. He may be being taught by a pagan priest, but God was protecting the soul of that young man so that when he was old enough to understand and when God was ready to begin to work in his heart, he was pliable. And he had this basic understanding, not very well developed yet, but some basic understanding of the real and the true God, probably rooted clear back in the, those early years when he was in the home of his parents. Moses was certainly taught to read Egyptian hieroglyphics. He was probably also taught to read Akkadian cuneiform. Akkadian was the lingua franca of the Near Eastern world in the second millennium before Christ. And it was written in cuneiform. You've probably seen little examples of that. The, uh, Mediterra the um, Mesopotamian world, it was very common for them to write on little clay tablets with little wedge-shaped instruments, which created a funny-looking, to us, funny-looking form of writing. It looked like a chicken walked across the uh, clay, clay, but uh, they call it cuneiform, wedge-shaped writing. And, and that was common. Egyptian hieroglyphics, of course, uh, sacred writing of the Egyptians had to be understood also. So I think Moses was very highly trained and skilled in the world of his day. I think he was taught the music and the art and all of the Egyptian wisdom. Remember uh, Daniel and the other young men who were sent off to Babylon? What were they taught? They were trained in the ways of the Babylonians. And yet they proved to be of greater wisdom and greater understanding than any of the other counselors that were being trained. Because to them, the fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. The others didn't have that. And so Moses was trained in the wisdom of Egypt. Does, was the wisdom of Egypt known as, as anything out of the ordinary exceptional? Well, let me read a verse to you that comes from 1 Kings, which, of course, was written many, many years later, which says this, Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. So the two great repositories of wisdom in those days were thought to be of the East. You know, in the days of Jesus, the Magi came from the East. Of the East and then of Egypt. Those are the two great centers of worldly wisdom. And so Moses was thoroughly trained, certainly, in, quote, worldly wisdom. It's possible to understand and to know worldly wisdom and yet not to be a worldly person. But then to take that wisdom and to use it as a tool for God. Such was the Apostle Paul. And, and later time, there would be another individual whose name was Justin, who would be of the same, uh, I mean, I wouldn't put him on the same par with Paul, but, but Justin was an individual who had been trained and schooled in all the wisdom of the world until one day, by his own testimony, he came to Christ walking on a beach talking to an old fisherman. 
and he came to know Christ. But then he took all that learning and all that understanding and used it as a sword to reach the educated for Christ. Of course, he paid with his life, became just and martyr as a result. Now, if Pharaoh lacked a son to succeed him, according to Egyptian tradition, if Pharaoh had no son, he would be succeeded by the eldest son of his eldest daughter. Was this his eldest daughter? Well, we don't know. Did she have any other sons? We don't know that either. But Josephus tells us that the answer was no. Pharaoh had no son, and she had no other, she was the eldest daughter, and she had no other son. Which leads us to believe that it was possible that, Pharaoh, that Moses was being groomed for the throne of Egypt. It's possible. Now that shouldn't be terribly foreign to us because another Jew, another Hebrew, was raised to prime minister of Egypt named Joseph and was highly lauded by Egyptians. Josephus tells us a long, strange story about Moses. Uh, he tells us that Thermuthus took the baby before Pharaoh, her father, and said, I want you to name him as your successor that Pharaoh acceded to her request and said, okay, I so name him. And then he has some other gobbledygook in there, which is hard to believe. But then he goes on and he gives a whole section in there about the fact that when Moses grew up and he had been fully trained in the ways of the Egyptians and he understood Egyptian politics, he had been trained militarily, that Egypt suffered a major invasion from the south of Ethiopians. And the Ethiopians were overrunning Egypt. And finally, Thermuthis came, came to her father and said, Look, give Moses a chance to defend us. And so he said, Oh, I name him general of the army. And then Moses went out and defeated the Ethiopians and became a great hero in all of Egypt as a mighty commander of military power. Well, the Bible doesn't say that at all. <laughs> There's no even intimation that that was true. But we do note that Moses lived in Egypt for 40 years before he exited to the desert. Now, what does he do during 40 years? I mean, certainly he's not being trained for all those 40 years. Certainly he served as an adult prince for a while. Was he a military commander? Well, we don't know. He makes no allusion to it at all, but it's always uh, a possibility. Where did Joseph, Josephus get his story? Did he make it up? Or is that a Jewish tradition that has no root? Or does it, is it a tradition that has a root? Well, God only knows. There's no doubt that Moses was trained to be a leader. Only in God's mind, it wasn't to be a leader of Egypt. It was to be a leader of God's own people. Now, did God need an educated leader to lead his people out? God could have done anything. But God uses skills which we acquire if we give them to Him to accomplish His purpose. God doesn't just ride roughshod through the whole thing and, and, and do what He wants regardless of anything. He often uses what preparation we have had for His purpose if we yield that preparation to Him. Well, whatever Moses' parents were able to instill in him of the true God and of his true ancestry. It was the Spirit of God 
who wouldn't let him forget it and gave him a basic understanding which he would have to fill out later on but at least motivated him to initial action. Let me read one more verse uh, from Acts 7 and verse 23 where it says, And when he was approaching age 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. His brethren. He understood who they were. And therefore he went to see how they were doing. Now he knew how they were doing. He knew they were slaves. But he wanted to see for himself how they were being oppressed. On-site investigation. And when he saw the condition of his people, and his spirit came to identify with him, with them, he was moved to action. Well, I think we'll look at his action next week, beginning at verse 11. But I think it's important to note that not every action taken by a person chosen of God is God's action. And uh, as we look at what Moses did and how God used him, we have to understand there sometimes is a difference between what God orders to be done and what God works through in spite of the fact that we've done something else. 